Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to the Backstage With podcast. I'm Mikey Worrell. In this episode, we're going backstage with Emma Williams, who's currently on tour in a new stage adaptation of the film An Officer and a Gentleman. We caught up while the show was in High Wycombe at the Wycombe Swan. Here's our conversation. Here we are at the Wycombe Swan with four-time Olivier nominee Emma Williams. <laughs> Hello. How are you? How's it going? I'm really good. Yeah, I'm really good. You know, we're in, in High Wycombe. The sun has been shining. It's really rather glorious. and uh, My water's arrived. Your water's arrived and life can continue. Thank it's you, all Lizzie. great. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. my rider. <laughs> Mine is coffee. It's just always coffee. That's all I need. Uh. Um, so here we are, you're doing uh, An Officer and a Gentleman. Yep. Um, how far through the tour are we at the moment? This is our third venue on the tour. So we started at Leicester Curve and we started rehearsals at the end of February and uh, opened there in April, beginning of April, and did sort of three weeks there. It's kind of intense process doing a, a made at Curve production because you're rehearsing in-house and you're working, working through everything there. With any new show, it would be like that. And then when you go into previews, you're making all those changes and adjustments. So we don't really feel like we stopped until probably press night, which was two days before we finished in Leicester. And then everyone packs up and gets in their cars and starts touring. It's it's sort of crazy. We've got it's a 22 week tour, I think. Okay. So we're ooh, 18 weeks to go, 19 weeks to go. Right. It feels like not long enough right now. I feel a little bit like, no, that's going to go too quick. Yeah, 22 weeks doesn't sound that long. It really doesn't. And it really doesn't when you're moving around so much. Um, it's um, it's going to be fun. We're going to some great places and, and so many theatres I've never played. So I'm, I'm thrilled. Have you been here before? No. no me neither. No, I, I'm, I've never even visited, which seems so crazy because it is only about an hour away from where I live. So are you, um, are you at home for, the, for this stuff? Yeah, I live, in, uh, I live in a little village called Biggleswade, oh, right. um, which is actually full of West Sounds End. Cute. Actors, musos, techies. Seriously, that kind of Bedfordshire corridor, right. kind of Hitchin, Stevenage, mm. um, Biggleswade, St. Neots, there's, there's a little bit there. There's loads of us from the industry there because it's really commutable for touring and it's really commutable for town. You know, it's we, we refer to the late night train that we all get together as, as the Starlight Express. <laughs> <laughs> Because it's so, you can, you can always find a couple of actors or, or musos on there. And, um, you know, I'm married to a muso, so I th- it just makes sense that oh, you're so Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Woo. Ten days ago. It's mad. <laughs> Have you got honeymoon planned? <laughs> One day, hopefully. At the moment, you know, I'm on this till mid-September. James, my uh, husband, <laughs> still feels weird saying that. Um, he's the drummer on Shrek. So he's touring on a totally che- separate schedule to ours. We're Monday to Saturday generally. He's Tuesday to Sunday. And they're two weekers. We're one weeker. So that it makes it tricky. That's really um, not ideal, is it? So we'll just have to wait and see. Some might say it's the perfect marriage. We never see each other. <laughs> do you do you cross over geographically at any point? Um, we sort of we try to. I mean, I have like um, a spreadsheet. I'm known for my spreadsheets. It's really sad, um, but I have a spreadsheet that literally details my venues and his venues, how far apart they are, how far away they are from home, our different digs addresses, and then trying to work things out like. This Sunday he is finishing in Stoke because they've got two shows on a Sunday. 
And rather than him coming home, because my next venue is Birmingham, but we don't start till the Tuesday and his next venue is Liverpool, so instead we're meeting at Canic Chase. I'm going to have a little mini room for a night in, a, in a, an Airbnb near to Canic Chase and go for some walking in the sunshine. It's, it's, it takes a lot of planning, but that's how you make things work. So. Yeah, that's really cute as well that you've got your spreadsheet. I love that. <laughs> um, just go back to, to this show then. Is, yeah. is this the first time this has been done? Because I've never seen the film, um, um, but I know it's, it's, it's big. Oh, I'm excited for you to see the show then. This is going to be interesting. Um, it's not the first time the, show's, the film's been put on stage. The first time, I think, was in the 80s. A Japanese troupe, or an all-female troupe, um, put it on stage in a, in a very unusual art form, I believe. Um, Douglas Day Stewart was telling me about this. He's the original screenwriter. Then there was a production in Australia maybe six or eight years ago which featured all new music as well as the iconic Up Where We Belong, which is in the film. And I don't think it quite ever landed, shall mm. we say. What Jamie Wilson Productions and Curve and Nikolai Foster have done is go back to that original Roots material and try and find the best way to serve it on stage whilst also adding music in. It's, it's almost less of a musical and more of a play with music. That sounds really strange to say, but 80s music is incredible. It comes from an era of songwriting that was breaking out from that 60s kind of business production side where they were all kind of coming from songwriting companies um, into this new era of music where people were really writing narrative-driven songs, narrative-driven pop songs. So there's a lot of depth and truth in those lyrics. There's a reason that that music is still standing. It's got a longevity to it. And I think what Nikolai and what Jamie and everybody involved in the show have done is they've really taken their time to find the right songs that fit. And it's an interesting thing that, that you know, you could come along and just go, oh, and now an 80s song. If you listen to the lyrics, if you really listen to the lyrics, which is what you should do, and maybe we don't listen to lyrics as much when we know a song as, we, as when we go into a piece of musical theatre where we're hearing the song for the first time. But if you really listen to the lyrics, they really do tell the stories that these people are going through, the, the darkness and the hardness. It's, it's gritty. It's a really heavy period, kind of politically, emotionally, economically, socially. Pensacola, Florida at that time was, was coming out of um, post-Vietnam War era the brutality that went with that and how you as a nation cope with that afterwards when you know so many of your of your young men your young women are being lost in battle and then you come into this era of women trying to make uh, an inroad for themselves the women in this in this town in particular working in, in the local paper factory it's they're kind of born there they grow up there they get married there and they die there there's no scope for them to progress and what we've tried to do with the show that isn't as clear in the film is look into those women's stories and explore why they are the way they are and what they're hoping to achieve. It's nice that we get to explore that properly. I think it's important that we don't ignore this part of our history. A lot of, of, of that and the issues that this, it sounds like it deals with, are mm. obviously very relevant today still. You yeah. Know, you go venture outside of London and it's very much like that at the moment. Absolutely. And I think anyone like myself, I, I grew up in, in Yorkshire, I grew up in a, in a small town, a small village, where... You know, there is still a lot of unemployment. There are still people fighting to find their way in life. And I, I think maybe that's why this honour tour is really striking a chord with our regional audiences, because we are going to some places where those people are still struggling and fighting to, to, to make their own way in life and, and fight against what is the prescribed 
intention that they're handed, shall we say. Do you think, that's really interesting, do you think a show like this is more is going to strike a chord more with the regional audiences than it might if it was being done inside the London bubble, as it were? The one thing you find when you're touring is that the audiences react differently everywhere across the country, and it could be any show that you take out there. Some audiences are going to sit and listen more. Some audiences are really up for a night out because they might go to the theatre once a month at the most if they're lucky, sometimes maybe twice a year, and one of those will be pantomime. So your audiences are very varied. They're not the London audiences who may maybe go to theatre more regularly or are tourists. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they're not taking away the same things from it. It's really interesting to watch the audience in this show, and there are little moments where you get a chance to kind of have a look at them and, and see how they're reacting, and it's, it's fascinating to me because I remember being that kid in that audience watching a tour in production as it came to Halifax or to Bradford or... You know, sometimes we go to Leeds and seeing how you are affecting them on stage. This is the great thing with theatre is that we can take modern, relevant issues and, and put them straight out there in front of people. And I do think theatre is more effective in that way than necessarily TV or film because you're seeing it in front of you, properly there in front of you. And there's something really rather amazing about that. It puts you in a more vulnerable, as an audience member, in a more vulnerable position, doesn't mm. it? Almost having it right in front of you. Cause Absolutely, I, yeah. I, I, like you say, I remember going to Leeds as a kid and seeing yeah. Blood Brothers and being like struck down by it and going, this is amazing. Second row of, uh, of the stalls watching Martin Guerre and I could feel the flames when they set fire in act. I could feel those flames against, against my face. It was amazing. And then getting to perform there in that same theatre in the quarry space was just incredible. Yeah, I know, I know what you mean. It's a... I think anyone who's fortunate enough to grow up going to just London theatre is, is, really, is a really lucky person. But for those of us who grew up outside of, of London, outside of, as you say, the bubble that theatre is there, which is amazing and so all-encompassing and, and fabulously creative, it's really important then that, that regional theatres get great tours and be varied in what they produce and show that there are alternatives outside of what you might think musicals are this is a little different this is a departure for me and I'm loving it and and on the fun side what what are the 80 songs that you you're <laughs> like in there going yes I get to sing that one I do you know what we have this amazing live band and you really see them in the pit here at Wickham Swan which is fantastic um so I mean we've got 24 24 songs from the 80s and it all builds from that up where we belong that you've got in the film you couldn't do this story without that song it's it's iconic that whole moment is iconic we'd be doing the whole piece of disservice if it wasn't there but then we've got things like living on a prayer bon jovi we've got blaze of glory which the fabulous johnny fine sings and it's amazing every night gives me chills um my favorite in the entire show is family man that um is sung by sid played by ian mcintosh who is just astonishing um he's a genius he genuinely is a genius to watch him is uh, humbling frankly and I, and I say that with all the love that I possibly can I think he is incredible to reinvent these songs in a different way I mean my favourite that I get to sing is Alone I get to sing Alone by heart which is never a song I thought would be coming out of my vocal cords it's a classic <laughs> You know, it's a far cry from uh, from the old soprano. It's not a love story, is it? <laughs> no, it's really not, and uh, I couldn't be happier. I know a lot of film to stage adaptations get mm. a bit of a bad rep, but actually... What they've done is possibly the most sensible, most truthful option. You know, when you take a movie that's as high-grossing as 
um, an officer and a gentleman was. It's like one of the, the highest grossing movies of all time. It, it was amazing. But it was also dark. It's, it was the second film in history to use the C word. That's astonishing. And I don't think people remember quite how dark it is because, I mean, that final moment of him sweeping, sweeping her up in his arms is so iconic. It's been parodied across, you know, across genres. It's, it's incredible how much that moment has been parodied. But to actually take the original story, that, that darkness and the griminess that came with it of this young, broken, damaged guy trying to put his life in some sense of order to try and give himself a future you, we have to go there we have to explore that darkness because if we didn't we, we would be doing it a disservice so it's really nice to to play with that every night and you know, Johnny is amazing he plays Zach we're very fortunate we have a very open relationships so when we kind of work with scripts and with scenes it's like okay what's working what do we want to try what are we going to adjust this to now what is this audience like how do we fix this how do we how do we move things so that it's always fresh it's always kind of on the front foot because you can't ever become complacent and when you're changing theatre every week you've got different auditorium sizes but not only that the way the audience is spread they might be wider or higher or further away so you've got to adapt your performance to fit those audiences and you've got to adapt it on the hoof basically because you don't get a chance to do a dress rehearsal your first night is your press night you're away you go you know how do you, how do you find that touring being moved around every week and, and mm-hmm. not only new theatres but new digs and you're having to feel settled and, and go out there and be open it's, <laughs> you never feel hard. settled you never feel settled it's really weird I have a friend who tours in a camper van and I kind of understand it now because they're always going back to the same bed at least um, I'm an insomniac I haven't slept well since I was about 14, 15. So for me, going to digs, is, it's a really odd sort of setup. You know, you know automatically if you're comfortable somewhere and, you know, you get recommendations from friends, but it is always a bit weird. You're basically living in someone's spare room for, for a week. You're creeping in at, you know, half past 11 at night if you've you know, not gone to the pub for a drink and, and trying to be quiet and then trying not to be woken up at 6, 7 a.m. when they get up for work. And it's a very strange life in that respect. But you have to be open to it and willing to adapt because if you're not, then you shouldn't be doing it, frankly. That, that is basically the bare bones of it. If you aren't prepared to do it, just don't because it shows you know and there are so many actors out there who'd kill to be doing these jobs they really would and I think we owe it to ourselves to to take the jobs that we desperately want and love and need to do because if you don't if you're just doing it because it's something to do then it shows on stage and it's not fair on anyone the audience the company anyone do you get I know obviously in town you get the, the stage door crowds or whichever theatre you go mm. to but do you get much of that reaction that or direct audience reaction in the regions um they do, people do come to stage door I have, I have a policy that I go to stage door after every show whether it's matinee or evening I will always stop at stage door just in case because I waited outside so many stage doors as a kid waiting to see people um so I'll never leave through front of house I'll never do it's, I just can't do it it, it it's not in me it's not how I was raised it's not what I do and you know if there's just one kid that's waiting or one adult they don't have to be a kid but if someone is waiting I'll take the time to talk to them because they've given us their attention for two and a half hours I think I can give them mine after a show frankly 
And we do get it. I love it when people come to visit Stage Door. I think it's brilliant. I love it when people tweet me and tell me they're coming. It's like, it's really nice. They become sort of, you know, familiar faces that you get to see. And I still have people who saw me in Chitty, my first ever show. And they still come and see the show. So uh, lovely Alison, I think, I saw last week in, uh, in Southampton. And I know I've got people tonight who are coming to the show who first saw me in Half a Sixpence. So, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't change however long you're working for. You just kind of gather more people along with you. <laughs> That's really nice. I've never heard actually someone talk about stage door so fondly. Mm, I love it. I mean, yeah, it can, there, there can be moments where you, you know, where it gets a little intense or, you know, boundaries might get pushed, but you have to find a way to maintain the correct boundaries and, and mm. understand what, what people want when they come and see you, that they've spent two and a half hours watching you as a character on stage to get a chance to talk to you in real life is, is different, you know. And frankly, these guys, the audience, they keep us in work. They keep coming to the theatre, they, you know, we can't do what we do without them. Mm. And so, hell yeah, come round to stage door. <laughs> um, you mentioned Chitty, mm. uh, 18 years old, being pushed <laughs> onto the stage at the Palladium. Weird. Was that not terrifying? Do you know what? I don't think I realised at the time quite how overwhelming it was because I was, I mean, I was 18 and from Yorkshire, which is sort of a bit like being 27 and from London. Um, <laughs> You know, uh, it's almost the other way around. Oh, I'm tired. You can just tell, can't you? You're, you're green and naive. Yeah, it's the other way around. I'll be 12 and from London. Um, <laughs> yeah, do you know what? I can relate to that. Do you know what I mean? It's, you know, I was kind of like wide-eyed and innocent. Like, wow, this is great. This is a big theatre. This is amazing. You just don't quite realise. And I think it was only afterwards that I went, wow, that was, that was a little out of the norm, wasn't it? That's a bit unusual. Okay, thank you very much. And then I was out of work for a year. You know, I just, that was it. And maybe that would have been it. I'm, I'm very fortunate that other, other things turned up because they might not have done. For a lot of people, they don't. How did Chitty happen? What was the, the, okay. the story of the, of the run-up to Chitty? So, I was doing my A-levels at school, normal secondary school. I was training to become a linguist. Um, that was my goal. I had a place at university to study the interpretation and translation of medieval and modern languages. Wow. <laughs> studying, I think, seven or eight languages. Um, it's just something I had a, a flair for at school, and I really loved them, and I, and I still do. I'm, I'm just rusty these days. I used to be fluent in French and German, and I'm just not anymore. Um, the language fascinated me, and we didn't do drama at my school. Um, but when I was 17 and in my first year of A-levels, because I was the last year that did A-levels over two years, um, they were making a movie. A Steve Cooper movie, it was his first, called The Prole Officer, and they needed an actress who was over 16 because of the chaperoning and the hours you were allowed to work, but looked about 14. And I've always looked quite young for my age. I went in, I read the script, I was really cheeky to the guy in the baseball cap, who it just turned out to be with Steve Coogan, and I think he liked that. And they cast me, so rather than go back to school for my second year of A-levels, I went and made a film. And I went back to school in the December, and I failed every single one of my mocks. Oh, no. Like, every single one of them, apart from general studies, in which I got an A. And in the end, I actually got a B in my general studies. Well, I was like, like, can I not take that, a mock That's result? quite a feat, because I, yeah. I, I did terrible in general studies. I mean, sort of ridiculous. I seem to recall that the mock exam question was something like, is theatre art? And I went, ha let me put on my ranting cap, of course. But I would have killed for that question. I would have killed for that yeah. question. Yeah, so because of that, I... I I had a London agent became interested in me. I went back to school, 
I got my A-levels, I got all five of them, I got my place at university and I deferred it for a year, mainly because I hadn't really had time to do the UCAS forms properly, the essays I needed to do. And when you're studying languages, my intention was to just go and spend a couple of months in France, a couple of months in Germany and mm. practice those languages with native speakers. And for language degrees, they're kind of like that, it's useful. And during that, that break period, the film came out in the August, I signed to the London agent in the September, and Chitty was my second audition. And I was only sent along for the experience. She said, you're not going to get the job, Emmy. You're not going to get the job. It's just for the experience. So just go and enjoy it and, you know, fine. Ten days later, start to finish. And I was signed before I was allowed to leave Saddle as well, where I'd be doing this audition. Two-hour workshop audition with um, Michael Ball and um, Adrian Noble and all the producers, which I'd finished singing a piece of opera. Casual, as you do. Because um, at the time it was a bit like, you know, proper university, drama school, opera college. Um, and they said, just sing something to impress us. And I went, oh, couldn't find this music in my bag. I told them, went, um, oh, just give, me a, just give me a middle C. So they did. And I didn't realise I'd knocked myself up about, you know, two tones from where I should have started oh, it. And I finished with this massive big aria with a big old high C at the end of it. And, and they went, okay, <laughs> interesting. Nice. <laughs> And, um, yeah, that was that. I was waiting downstairs when Adrian Noble came down in the lift with me and he just went, so I really like you and Michael really likes you and um, the producers really like you. And I was waiting for, but, because I've been told, you're not going to get it. He said, so welcome on board and we'll see you in January. And I screamed, threw my arms round him, I think kind of leapt on top of him. <laughs> really inappropriate. And, uh, and then burst into tears. And I, I just remember um, Barbara and Dana Broccoli, bless her, coming down in the lift and finding me in floods of tears. And Dana just going, get her tea. She needs tea for the shark. Get her some tea. <laughs> I sat there drinking my first ever cup of tea because I wasn't I, mean, I wasn't brave enough to say I don't actually drink Hold tea. I'm You've so never sorry. had a cup of tea. You were from Yorkshire and you've never had yeah, a cup no. of tea before. No, I'm a coffee girl. Uh, I know, I know. I drink tea now. But I was a coffee girl, oh. I promise you. <laughs> um, how old is Truly Scrumptious meant to be? Were you sort of playing slightly older than... I don't think it's ever put down how old she is. She's the daughter of the local sweet shop man, so she's marriable age. But it's never really... I don't think it was ever mentioned. It's not in the script. It's kind of lovely in that respect. It was a great first role for someone. But equally, it's been played by some amazing women since, including Rachel Stanley, who plays my mom in this. <laughs> we both played the same role twice. In fact, we both played Betty Haynes in White Christmas the same year in different productions. Um, she was at, at the Dominion in London, and I was up in West Yorkshire Playhouse with Nikolai. Um, and yet, you know, we're not... We're not the same casting bracket, but that's the glory of theatre. It is, it is adjustable. The weird thing was, I think that... You know, I was playing opposite Mikey. Mikey's, I think, was 20 years older than me. Um, 21, maybe. But because of that, I came out of that show and then I think people thought I was older than I was. And <laughs> so you turn up to auditions and they go, like, hi, I'm like 19 and a half. They're like, oh, oh that's, um, that's not what we were expecting. Okay, yeah. So drama school just never happened for you? It just never happened, yeah. And I never, I never, never said I wasn't going to go. Every time there was sort of a, a lull in my, in my career or a bit of down to be like, okay, well, let's start looking at the brochures, see where we go, what do we do? And then a job would turn up and, you know, you just kind of knock on wood and run with it for as long as you can because there are times when it just disappears. You know, I didn't really work for three years after Love Story, which was mad to me. I was kind of, I thought I'm kind of hitting a, a good stride, but for various reasons... 
I just couldn't nail those auditions. I could get far, but I couldn't nail them. It's a competitive industry and you've got to be on your game. How do you keep yourself going? You know, not working for three years, that would finish a lot of people off and they would say, I'm done, I'm walking away. How, mm. how do you pick yourself back up and say, no, we're carrying on, we're, we're trying again? Um, I think because I've always felt like... I've always felt like this was this was a, sort of given to me as a bit of a, a, a gift in terms of the random way that I managed to get into it professionally. That I, I don't think I feel like the industry ever owes me anything. I just want to give it everything I have. I'm really fortunate. I've had the same sort of steady day job since I was twenty. Um, I've worked for Cameron Macintosh in their office for thirteen years now. Um, Sixpence was the first show I'd ever done for them. But I've always always taught to graph, to to pay my way, so I've always worked a day job. And, you know, sort of 40 to 70 hours a week day job. That's what you do so that you can do this industry, so that you can do this job. Do you have a a favourite, from all the shows you've done over the Mm. past how many years, do you, is there one you look back on and think that was like the, 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 the one? Because you've done some really varied stuff, and yeah. like, you know, you've gone from love story and Zorro it's, and past yeah. It's really hard. There are moments that I loved in each and every show. Like I really love um, the man behind the mask moment in Zorro. Love story as a as a narrative to play that storyline was amazing. I don't know if I'll ever find a better acting role than that. This one possibly comes close because she's flawed, and flawed characters are so much more fun. You know. A lot of older musical theatre productions, the, the women need rescuing. Playing a role that needs rescuing isn't fun. It's not enjoyable, it's not exciting. So you have to find ways, as a modern female, to make them more interesting. So when someone hands you a role and they're, they're damaged and they've got a bit of a, of a darkness to them, you're like, yes, absolutely, I can relate to this, this is good. It's, it's just much more enjoyable. I loved White Christmas. It has special memories for me. It's where I met my other half. But at the same time, I, really random roles that people didn't get, really get to see, like um, playing Ellie in, in Sex Chips Rock and Roll in Manchester at the Royal Exchange. It was glorious, working in the round, absolutely amazing. Playing this really traumatic journey, I mean, of a young woman who falls in love with a guy and ends up getting pregnant by him and then finds out that her twin is dating him. And it's all gone very, very wrong. She gets married off to the elder guy and and has a baby and gets told she's going to have to hand her baby away. Every day of rehearsal finished with something traumatic happening and I'd sit in the pub every night going, oh God, I wish I drank. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> um, just to try and sort of get that, that sort of emotion out of your system. It was a glorious piece. But this equally, this, this is glorious. And it's so far removed from what I normally do. And that's what's exciting, challenging yourself. It's the whole point, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It'd be boring if you just did the same thing over and over again. <laughs> You've had some great leading men in mm. your time. Yeah. Um, what's it like, what was it like working with Matt Rawl and Michael Xavier? Amazing. I mean, I've been really fortunate. I've, I've worked with some incredible leading men. I really have. Um, I have to pinch myself ever so slightly. We have such a wealth of talent in this country and... Slowly they all got pinched over to Broadway the other year. It's like, what are you doing? Michael Xavier's gone there, Stephen Ashfield's gone there, now Charlie's gone there. It's like, come on, guys, send this one back. Um, it's brilliant. You, every production that you do is only as good as the sum of the whole, but particularly those, those relationships. A relationship is only as good as the two people playing it. 
you can be brilliant, but if the person you're playing opposite doesn't work with you or you don't gel or you don't find a way to make it work, then it's difficult. Mikey, Xavier and I were doing a workshop of a, of a new musical at The National when the Love Story auditions came in and after we'd finished the big presentation, everyone else went to the pub and we went and sat in a corner and read these script together because we knew we were going in for our final round together the next day. So it was really important that we developed that relationship. We needed to find a way to create a couple that were going to meet, fall in love, get married and have that entire relationship, that seven-year relationship in a very brief period of time. And you've got to put that across in the audition room because the chemistry is, is really important. Mm -hmm. Interestingly for Johnny and I, we'd never worked together. We knew each other sort of very roughly through the circuit, but we'd never worked together. And we weren't cast together, but we met in the corridor outside the, the audition room just after I'd been in and just before he was due to go in. And I don't know, it was just something like, oh, that would work. I actually think I stood there and I said, how tall are you? I'm six foot. I went, oh, that's good, that's good. Six foot works for me. <laughs> Confident. But it was that kind of, um, that kind of thing of going, it's just the, the, the random jokes that come out when you're nervous and anxious. And I don't know, it's strange. Weirdly, our voices blend really well together and, and the chemistry seems to work really well. And that's such a relief because you know that whatever you've got that you bring to the table is just kind of, you know, you're just going to go, this is mine, that's yours, great, let's go, let's run with this. Do you find it hard going, doing that audition process not knowing who you're going to be with or, or do you prefer sort of being cast on your own merit rather than how you mix um, with someone else? They each have their pros and cons. You know, if you stuff up your audition and it's purely down to you, then you go, fine. If you feel like you didn't manage to do the best you could do because you weren't working well with the person you were opposite, you have to bear in mind that you know, that's the person they see you working with. And, you know, so much of what we do is completely subjective. There are so many of us that could do these roles. You just have to hope that you're the best person on the day at the time and, and, and go with that. They're, you can only prepare yourself. And so long as you go in prepared, knowing that you've done everything you can do, then, hey, you'll be fine. Well, thank you so much for talking to, to me. Thank you. And we've, we've loved our time here in Yay. the round room, I believe. This the is round called. room, this is, because my dressing room has no windows and smells like beef. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not actually joking. There's a kitchen next door for the town hall and my entire dressing room randomly smells like beef snacks. Which I'm like, I don't mind. I just wish they'd bring some by. <laughs> um, it's really weird. Interval munchies. And it comes with its own ensuite spider. So that's oh, nice. No. Yeah. I had a run between shows yesterday. It's become a bit of a thing. I'm going for a, like a three and a half mile run between shows. Um, and I came back and I got in the shower and I'm showering. There is a spider on the ceiling. I'm not happy. It's like, okay, you just, you just stay there. I don't mind you watching, but just don't come near me. Oh, God. <laughs> Terrible. I haven't got the guts up to ask one of the boys to come and move Did you do yet. that thing where you walk away and then next time you go back it's not there? And... Oh no, he turned around at one point and that freaked me out. I've named him Jeff. <laughs> Jeff the Spider. Jeff the Spider, because why not? Brilliant. Um, uh, I figure if I give him a name, he'll be nice to me. And <laughs> not hide in my shoes. Uh, oh yeah, you don't want that. Just feeling a little scurry midway through the oh. Sorry. Oh dear. Thank you ever so much. Thank you. You can catch An Officer and a Gentleman on tour in the UK until mid-September. 
I'll be back with another episode of Backstage With very soon. But don't forget to stay up to date on Twitter at Backstage underscore with and subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. And trying not to sound desperate here, but please, 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 if you like the podcast, give us a rating and a review if you're feeling extra generous. It does really help. This episode was produced and edited by me, Mikey Worrell, with thanks to Emma Williams, Raw PR, Lizzie and the team at the Wickham Swan, and What Goes On Media. Thanks for listening. See you next time.